I've uh, mentioned this uh, before, but um, as a boy, I, I hated being told it's a done thing. I hated being told just because. I wanted reasons. You know, I'm being fair here. Just tell me a reason. I'll think about it. And then, but see this, just because, and it's a done thing for all kinds of things, big and small. I think the worst one that I remember was, don't cut your toenails on a Sunday. (laughs) Where on earth was that? Where did that come from? Goodness sake, just because. I might add, uh, as an aside, um, I I mean, I still have that mindset, you know. I want to know why. Don't just tell me just because, you know. Um, Having that mindset makes it very difficult being in the church, actually. Because the church, at all kinds of levels, is so tied to just because. This is the way we do things. And don't ask, I don't, you know, question. just, Just because. It's not good. It's okay to ask why. In fact, it's a good thing to ask why. In that spirit of asking questions, I want to remind us that there's three reasons uh, we're looking at this series of God being in the silence, what's happening. There's three reasons we're looking at this theme of unanswered prayer. The first reason is the emotional ones. We live in a hurting world and we hurt in a hurting world. Last Sunday, looking in Mark 14, that gets in the Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we saw him in emotional turmoil, distressed and troubled, it said, overwhelmed with sorrow, verses 33 and 34 of the previous chapter in Mark. Secondly, as well as these emotional hurts, which make us ask why, there's intellectual reasons, the search for meaning and purpose in life. If we believe in a world that was made by God and made by God for a reason and given meaning and purpose by God, and if there is an eternity that, again, God is fashioning and purposing, then we are not just some random collection of atoms that somehow happen to be here and then will go away. No, the story of God in the world has a beginning and an end in view, and all that happens in between creation and the end, new creation, All of that is part of God's purposes and plans. And just as Jesus in Gethsemane, when he spoke out of that heart and said, if possible, let this pass from me. In the reading in Mark 15, the first of the passages that Murdo read, Jesus legitimizes the why question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we're looking at this theme for emotional reasons. We hurt living in a hurting world. We're looking at it because there's there's questions about meaning and and life. And thirdly, for cultural reasons. Because in our society today, the name of the game seems to be to seek pleasure, seek comfort, seek ease, getting things our own way. We are told that we have rights for all kinds of things now. And so it's easy for us to come to expect that things should be worked out in our favor in ways that suit us. And we find it hard when that's not the case. So for these three reasons, we're looking for a few weeks at this theme of unanswered prayer when nothing seems to come from God in terms of what we're expecting. 
Now the cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is a very desolate cry, isn't it? The weight of the world's evil had converged upon Jesus, blotting out the sunlight of God's love. Just like a a volcanic explosion would cut off the sunlight from all of those caught underneath the lava cloud. Suddenly those underneath the lava cloud after the volcano has gone off don't see what you were used to seeing and they know that there's danger around. It's a painful, a difficult, a brutal place to be. And this is Jesus on the cross as it were, cut off suddenly from the love of God, cut off from the experience of God that he'd known day by day. He had known God affirming him at at particular and special times in his life. For example, in his baptism, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. Or or again at the transfiguration on the mountain, this is my son. He had these affirmations from from God. You're on the right track. You're, you're, You're good. I am pleased with you. And then at Calvary, just darkness. And, and, and what he had known and experienced suddenly wasn't there. And he cries out, why? His cry was mistaken, verse 35 of that chapter, to be a call for Elijah. That wasn't what he was doing. But yet Mark and, and other gospel writers have, have kept that in the story. I think they've kept it in the story because they think it's no bad thing if at this point in reading the gospel we are made to think back to when Elijah really does appear. You see, here's a false call for Elijah. Jesus doesn't mean that. But Elijah has appeared in the gospel. And in Mark, he's there in chapter 9, in that story of the transfiguration and in the preparation for the Messiah that um, was John the Baptist's ministry back in Mark chapter 9. And the point is that Elijah had indeed come to Jesus not to rescue Jesus from crucifixion, but rather to point him toward it, assuring Jesus that this was the way that the Father wanted him to go. And yet the dark cloud of evil, Israel's evil, the world's evil, evil of Satan himself, greater than the sum of all its parts, is piled upon Jesus, cutting him off from the one that he calls Abba and welling up from his lifetime of biblically-based prayer comes a cry, which is from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A A cry not of rebellion, but of despair. A despair at having lost contact with the Father. And a cry that asks, why should that be? Now, before we see this episode, before we see this passage as Jesus setting us some kind of example, before that, we have to see its place in the gospel story as Jesus doing the work of a saviour. Jesus is not in the first instance going through this experience so that we might know what to do when we suffer. He is rather, he is bearing the weight of the world's sin. He is becoming sin 
that he might be the sacrifice for sin, that he might bear the penalty and wrath of God for our sake. So Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it would be the utmost, I think, in pointless cruelty for Jesus to have to go through with the crucifixion were it not to deal with life's ultimate issue. Our ultimate issue is how sinners can be reconciled with a holy God. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. Is that how you see Jesus? Not just as a good guy, not just as a wise teacher, not just as a prophet sent by God, not just as someone who gives us a good example about how to live, but as a Savior. And more particularly, as your Savior. He bore our sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Now, that, I'm saying, is Jesus' primary calling and role. But that does not mean, of course, that there's no other roles that Jesus has. My point is that none of these other things, like healer, example, teacher, and so on, none of them replace the importance of him being a savior, but that doesn't mean they don't matter. The verses with which we began our service this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, we are urged to consider Jesus because of the joy set before him. He didn't scorn the shame of the cross, but went through with it. Consider him. And that's just one of the many places in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as an example to us, an inspiration for us, or a challenge to us. Again, the cry from the cross legitimizes our questions, our seeking meaning. He is an example to us, and even in that, and it's good to ask. Our search for answers in the midst of suffering and injustice is legitimized here by Jesus. Why is this happening to me or happening to others? Why am I, why am they not getting out of this? Now, we don't get an easy answer. Life is complicated. But I want to point out three different things that shape or color how we should see this question of why. The first is God's world itself. Clearly, we can't all get what we would like in this world. Um, it was miserable weather here on Friday. I don't know if you noticed. Um, I, was, I was actually looking for some miserable weather, um, but not here. I was wanting miserable weather in Birmingham on Friday. I have nothing against Birmingham. I have nothing against the people of Birmingham. Um, but there was a cricket match going on there, which would have suited my preferences had it been rained off and then Lancashire, my team would have won the county championship. So I was hoping it was going to be a lousy day, and instead it was windy and wet here, and it was lovely in Birmingham. But I suppose there were other people who were actually wanting it to be a nice day in Birmingham. Warwickshire supporters. 
people, people maybe who were getting married on Friday in Birmingham and hoping for a, a nice day for their wedding. We can't all get what we want. Even in a more serious example, the crucifixion of Jesus. The religious leaders want Jesus killed. Pilate wants to be able to set him free and, and, and wash his hands of the whole thing and just there not be any more trouble. Peter, Peter is up for a bit of a fight. He wants Jesus to, to assert his authority. They can't all get what they want. That's the way of it in the world, surely. And it is often to do with wrong expectations that we hit trouble with an answer prayer. Because of the many advances in technology and advances in medicine and increased life expectation, certainly pre-COVID-19, and I, and I think it remains with us, to some we have unrealistic expectations. We are quick to assert our rights. We are quick to assert what we feel entitled to. We feel entitled to things that previous generations either called luxuries or would even dream of having. And many in church circles have transferred that attitude into their Christianity. We should always get it the way we want. We should always be happy. We should not have any illnesses. We should never have any problems. There should be no struggle with our sexuality. We should never have to do without. Some Christians call it faith and hope to expect that their children will be healthy and clever and successful, find an ideal spouse and have talented children of their own. But Jesus talked of life being hard for his followers. In this world, you will have trouble, he said to them in John's gospel. And that's the way of discipleship, isn't it? Paul said, I, <clears throat> I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's a fallen world in which we live. It's an imperfect world. If it were not so, there would have been no need for a saviour, no need for the cross. And it's a world in which we have freedom to disobey, to oppose God, to do evil, and we do. Why does God not sort it out? He has sorted it out. He will sort it out. The coming of Jesus as Savior is precisely God's clearest step to show us what he is doing. The only instant solution, do it now, would be to destroy the whole world. So we have to take into account when we think of our prayers not being answered and heard. Actually, it's a more complex issue. There's a whole complex world out there with different expectations, different regards. The second issue is God's will. We often assume that God wants for us what we want for ourselves. Or assume that it's his job to do what we want. Sometimes we ask for selfish reasons. James in his letter, chapter 4, says, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Because sometimes our focus is on what we are asking about rather than on our relationship with the one we are asking. 
And we shouldn't be surprised if that hurts our Heavenly Father. What kind of parent likes that sort of relationship with their families? More interested in the stuff than they are in love and loving relationships. And none of us, given a blank sheet of paper, would have outlined a plan of salvation of the world in the way that God has done through Jesus. None of us would have come up with that graciousness, that, that mercy, that cost on the Son of God. There will always be elements of mystery. God's ways are not our ways. And so we have to be careful sometimes in the assertion that we assume what God wants or know His will. So we live in a complicated world. Sometimes God's will is more to it than we might be able to discern in the short term. And thirdly, there's the issue of God's war. In his book, God on Mute, Pete Gregg, and then we're following the outline of that book in this series, Pete Gregg says this, Jesus taught us to pray to the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done, precisely because it isn't a foregone conclusion. We are told that Jesus lives to intercede for us, while the Holy Spirit prays for us in wordless groans, presumably because there are things God longs for which have not yet happened. It is also the Father's desire that everyone comes to repentance, 2 Peter 3, and yet people manifestly do not. Whatever else, in part, the Bible makes clear, as it does in our Ephesians, the second reading that Murdo read, that there is very real opposition to God in the world. While we are more often aware of it being a struggle for us to forgive someone, or to be generous with our finances, or whatever struggles we have in following Jesus— we are less aware than we should be that these are all part of a larger campaign that is being warred between God and his enemies. Holding out against the enemy attacks is what Paul was focusing on in that passage in Ephesians 6. Four times in verses 10 to 14, he says, stand in the Lord. Now, why is he emphasizing stand? Because there's opposition. There are things that might knock you over. There are things that might derail you, to use another illustration. Or to use another illustration of movement, when you're in, um, <clears throat> when you're in the shopping center and you're going, going on the, up the, in the elevator, you don't really have to work very hard to do so. You're taken up. That's dead easy. The Christian life should make be more accurately pictured as trying to go up when the elevator's going down. Because there's forces working against us. That's what, that's what Ephesians 6 is saying. That in this world, God is not unopposed. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God will overcome ultimately. But in the meantime, there are struggles and pressures. It's a bit like untying a whole lot of knotted string. You, you, you don't just pull it once and there it all is. God's working in the world. And, and sometimes knots have to be left there in order for other knots to be dealt with. And it's a much bigger, it's a much more complicated, it's a much more serious thing than we yet imagine or understand. 
And so in this hurting, this mixed world, in this world where we don't get some automatic um, knowledge of exactly God's will in every particular, in every situation, in this world there's a lot of opposition, which is why Paul has to write what he does in Ephesians 6. Unless we're using the weapons he mentions in the chapter, our commitment to truth, to sharing the gospel message, the reality of salvation, and so on, unless we do that, we will be destroyed by God's enemies. Jesus warned his followers that that's what was in store. Unless we are willing to engage with gospel opposition for Jesus' sake, Unless we are not willing and wanting to see the will of God done in the world, then we cannot and should not expect our prayers to be of the kind that connect with our Father. It's right to ask why. Please ask why. Do not settle for just because. Do not settle for it's the done thing. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we need to learn to ask our questions in the context of this bigger picture of God's world with all its complications as well as its wonders. Of God's will recognizing that too often we assume that God's will must be what we want of God's war, that our lives are part of a much bigger picture, that there is opposition, a downward pull when we want to go up. Is it worth it? Well, that takes me back to the question about Jesus as Savior. For if He's the Savior of the world most definitely it's worth it. If he's just an example, if he's just a teacher, if he's just a mate, it might not be worth it. But if he's the saviour of the world, all of that is worth it.